Welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Kyoko Minigishi. She is a global marketing leader whose expertise lies at the intersection of business strategy, impact generation, problem solving, team building and cross-cultural translation. As a trilingual professional, English, Spanish and Japanese, with experience living and working in four different countries, she translates global strategies into local plans and programs that effectively reach unique target audiences around the world. She also builds high-performing teams and integrates international multicultural talent both on-site and in remote locations, globally bridging cultural gaps and enabling optimal execution. Hi, Kyoko. Welcome to our Moment to Moment podcast show. Thank you so much, Divya, for having me. Super excited to have this conversation. I'm so excited because you have such a different background and I've been dying to know, you know, how you got into what you do today and uh, your whole global citizen approach to things. So let's start from your childhood. How was your childhood and where did you grow up? <laughs> My childhood was just a constant suitcase um, and moving around. It was so interesting, actually, because I was talking to my sister the other night and she basically said that we well, we basically just didn't have any recollection of when our parents told us we were moving. And it was this constant, just regular motion where every couple of years we were in, you know, a different country. And so before the age of 12, I moved back and forth between the U.S. and Japan seven times uh, before the age of 12. And so, you know, if you think about just having to navigate a new school, a new environment. And, you know, we were never kind of in the same location, even though it was back and forth between the same country of US and Japan, you're constantly having to make new friends, you know, new environments, new clubs, etc. So it really was an amazing childhood. And it was just so natural because I had done it for so long as a kid. But now, you know, in retrospect, as an adult, I feel so privileged to have had that experience, even though when I was younger, it felt so natural, but it definitely built a muscle. I would say, of how to navigate unfamiliar environments quickly. And that is something that I am eternally grateful for uh, in my childhood. So yeah, I've been very lucky um, to be exposed to multiple different countries. And then as well, since my parents were massive travelers, you know, between the back and forth, we were also traveling to amazing places like, you know, Kenya, Thailand, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, lots of adventures. Sounds so exciting. So when you were a little kid, you know, for a lot of kids, it's very daunting to get to a new school, make new friends. What helped you? I think I was very, you know, as, as any child, very observant and cautious in terms of all the environments that I was going into time after time that really built a skill set, but also a little bit of a passion, I have to say, of like studying people and environments. Um, because when you walk into a new room, you're trying to understand, okay, like, who are these people and how are they behaving? And of course, as a kid, you have like different crews, you know, you have the athletes, you have, you know, just the different characters. And so, you know, when you imagine that quintessential kind of new school environment, it's that cafeteria scene, right? Where do you sit? And you have all the different groups of, of people. And that is really, I guess, the, the epitome of the image of my childhood, just walking into a room, 
studying people, reading the air, reading the room to figure out, I guess, what my place in that new environment was. And when you do that kind of time and time again, you know, I think you you build a little bit of an affinity to feel like, okay, this is where I feel comfortable, or this feels safe, or this feels like I can, you know, approach a conversation. And, you know, you, you kind of get good at, at I guess, figuring out like where your place in that lunchroom is as you start to do this over and over. But what it also led to, which was really interesting, is um, I grew up in a time in Tokyo when Starbucks was just entering the market. And, you know, in Japan at the time, and while I, I was very young, so maybe this behavior existed before, but Starbucks for me and my sister was very much a people watching location. We were so excited by this new drink called the Frappuccino, you know? And so as, as young adults, we would go to the Starbucks because it was this new novel, you know, cafe and you could customize everything. And it was just, you know, nothing like that really had existed in Japan before. And we would sit there and, you know, very busy uh, cosmopolitan epicenters where interesting people were walking by and we would sit there with our frappuccinos and we would sit at the window and we would look at all the people and we would just create stories about them you know like this office man you know he looks really tired he had a late night uh, at the office yesterday and we would just start creating these lives of these stories of these people as they would walk by but it was you know in retrospect like at that time it was just kind of like a fun activity for us to do because we were enthralled by starbucks and we wanted to sit there but what I actually reflect on today is that it was this inherent curiosity for people and their behavior and allowing the opportunity to also storytell in my own head. And that combination, I think, also just naturally led me to the world of marketing, um, how to tell stories, how to understand people, how to empathize with people. And while I never could have imagined when I was that young, drinking a Frappuccino in a Starbucks, that I would become a marketer, it really was that training of almost ethnographic research of like sitting at a Starbucks and being like, huh, I want like, isn't that interesting that they decided to, you know, order that drink and then pay for it in that way. And then, you know, what they're wearing and, you know, just, <laughs> just really acute observation skills being developed as a young kid at Starbucks. So I have Starbucks to thank for that. <laughs> and for your storytelling capabilities, which are amazing. All of this movement, right? throughout your childhood and even later on, you are very open to travel, you've traveled for work and you've really tried to understand every culture and try to ingrain yourself into that culture to have that experience. How did that come about? Was that something that you developed during your travels or was that something that really spoke to you because you wanted to be part of the culture wherever you were? I mean, I think it's a natural human response to want to feel a sense of belonging. And, you know, I think as you move around, your sense of belonging is kind of shaped by your environment, I would say, because oftentimes, like you don't really have a community, because your community is your very nuclear unit that is traveling with you, which, you know, in my case, as a young child is my family, you know, you don't have another community. So when you move, whether you're traveling or moving to a different location, you know, I think it's natural, especially as a child, to want to quote unquote, play with someone else. And I just remember actually at five years old, my first trip to Kenya, I said jumbo to everyone, you know, 
everyone that would walk by that would be be friends with me you know at five years old I was like jumbo jumbo <laughs> like I just I wanted to interact with people and, and everyone in Kenya was so friendly and they would talk to me you know no matter what their age they would and then you know they would introduce me to different things um music food um teas and again, I'm just a five-year-old kid, super curious and, and just wanting to play and to have friends. But that, again, just allowed me the understanding that if you figure out a way to build a connection, you can learn so much. And that was really what I think became the motivator throughout my, my life of wanting not a sense of belonging per se as I grew older, but I, I was so eager to learn. I was curious, you know, and that I think uh, was this way of integrating, let's put it this way, into a culture or an environment um, and, and wanting to do that out of this curiosity of, huh, I wonder how they think about that here. Or I wonder, you know, what that culinary delicacies history is and how it became to be. I wonder why that word or in that language you know, doesn't have a translation and what is that cultural nuance that that is inherently just so descriptive of a behavior in their culture. And it just led to this kind of, um, yeah, inherent curiosity of culture, people and environments, which, you know, allowed me to integrate and I guess find community, but not from the place of like, I want to have friends. And so let's just talk to everyone, but more so this cultural curiosity of just wanting to learn the world. So when you were in high school, right, deciding what you wanted to do with your life, what were the career options you looked at and why did you choose whatever you ended up choosing? <laughs> so I was in Tokyo <laughs> and, um, you know, very, uh, you know, big glasses, kind of nerdy, um, not cool whatsoever. And um, I got introduced to hip hop music. And, you know, it's this very, in, in my context at the time, a very far off culture, right? I mean, the lyrics that they talk about, the, the, the beat, the rhythm, the entire environment that they were creating culturally through their music was something that, I, you know, I didn't see visibly in, in Tokyo. However, I was completely enthralled by the voices, the lyrics, the beat, the fashion. And through this kind of fascination with this culture, I think what I realized is that this music was almost an advocate or an ambassador for all of my feelings that I couldn't articulate as a teenager. And I think that's why I just built this kind of emotional connection with this lifestyle culture and music that was almost my, my voice when I, was, when I was a teenager. And that really led me to being enthralled with music and the power of music to make people feel understood, to make people feel heard, to make people feel represented. And that really led me down a rabbit hole to be like, okay, I am not a musician. I am not talented musically, um, lyrically to, to do this myself. But how could I also give a platform for other voices, for other people to feel this way that I do in such appreciation and gratitude that I had found almost, you know, this advocate for my feelings, if you will. And that really led me down a rabbit hole of a North Star of being like, I want to be the CEO of a record label. And that was my dream from like 16 years old. It was very clear to me that I was going to be the CEO of a record label and everything since, <laughs> since I was 16 
was laddering up to this dream. And so I hustled my way into various different internships, just trying to do whatever I could to learn what it would take. And of course, when you're 16, you don't really understand what a CEO is. You know, it just, it's this title that just sounds glamorous. Um, and I remember I was sitting in a coffee shop with one of my best friends and the image that we had of the CEO of a record label was we were in New York and I had like a convertible with my Starbucks coffee, like racing down Times Square. And, you know, it was just like a music video almost of what our impression was of like what a, what a CEO of a record label was, but that really focused me, I would say into being like, okay, I want to be a champion for these musicians and this culture and this lifestyle. How do I do that? I love thinking about how to amplify their craft, which obviously naturally led to marketing, which then led to event production, um, understanding the music creation process, understanding how you take music to distribution channels. How do you tell stories about the music? Like it just became this ever evolving thing that all throughout college, I did, you know, about seven internships in various different locations within the music industry. Um, that led to a, my foundational, you know, chapter one of a career at MTV, Universal Music Group, um, other kind of music entities that manage songwriters and uh, producers, as well as recording artists. And it just kind of gave me this breath. Um, and I think ever since then, um, no matter what the topic, it's been around giving a platform and championing voices um, that I really believe in and giving them a platform to share their craft, whatever that craft may be. What would you say were a couple of key things that kept driving you towards it? I think I was very lucky to have a surrounding environment of very powerful, diverse smart women. And when I was younger, I didn't necessarily seek that out. I didn't know to seek that out, especially within the music industry. It was very male concentrated. And so I, I have to say it wasn't something that I necessarily thought about, but was very grateful and lucky to have been surrounded by because that I think propelled me to see great examples of leadership as a woman and as a diverse woman. And now actually, you know, when I was young, I didn't seek it out. Now I am very prescriptive to, to put myself in environments where I know I will be set up for success. And, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, toxic environments or toxic managers. And I am very thorough in my research before entering into an environment, whether that's through the interview process, whether that's through talking with other people to ensure that I am in an environment that sets me up for success. And success for me is setting myself in an environment where I can learn very quickly. Do I have a nurturing environment that will allow me to learn and learn fast? Will they give me opportunities to learn quickly? And are there champions within the organization that will let me learn quickly and give me opportunity? I think as I went through the stages of my career, I really honed a skill to ensure that even if I didn't start in that type of environment, I put I was able to create an environment that fostered that type of thinking. I don't believe anyone will give you anything. It's just how I was brought up. And so if I am not in a productive learning environment, I will create that productive learning environment around me. I will bring the people around me. I will put the pieces together. I will get the information. I won't wait for it to come to me. And I think. That would be my advice for someone starting out is 
how do I build a successful environment around myself? You don't know what you don't know. So it can be incredibly difficult to know that as a young person. So the one thing I will say is ensure that whoever you decide to work for in your you know, preliminary jobs are people who are going to foster your learning, who are nurturers, who have a dedicated interest in actually taking the time to show you how to do something. And not everyone has that coaching you know, skill set. But I would really seek that type of profile out when you're in your beginning stages, because that's how you will learn very quickly. And I was very lucky in my um, preliminary jobs to have nurturers that would take the time to be like, okay, this is step one, this is step two, this is how I'm thinking about it, this is how I built my strategy. And they would really coach me through their, their thinking. And that enabled me to just do it on my own. It was like they were, they were very much of the philosophy of teaching someone how to fish versus, you know, fishing for them. That has also applied to how I manage as well. I'm not the person who, you know, is, is presenting all of my team's work. I, behind the scenes, very vigorously, and probably my team would say, like, painfully, um, coach them and train them through their scripts. So by the time they present their strategies, their thinking, their outcomes to senior leaders, they are the ones presenting, not me. And, you know, I think that leads to great visibility for them. That's why people feel confident in their work and they get promoted quickly. Um, and I'm very much of that philosophy because I was very lucky to have mentors that, that did that for me. And that's how I learned. Did you have role models growing up? You know, I, I didn't have that. I would say traditional sense of a role model of looking up to someone and being like, oh, I want to be like that person. But I had this fake image of a role model, you know, that was pieced together through different stories, different characters. And I will say the one realistic role model that has always been present in my life is my sister. She has very much paved a path for me um, that guided me in the most, I would say, productive and efficient way. And I say it in this way because she allowed me to, you know, she's older. So she had to do things first. She had to figure it out for herself. And actually one great example is when I was going for my MBA, we would sit around at the kitchen table and she would just grill me. You know, why do you want to go to the school? What, you know, what have you achieved that, you know, makes you feel prepared to get an MBA today? And, you know, it was brutal. And I was like, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, and I was completely ill prepared to answer these questions. But night after night, she would drill me. And it was this training that, you know, she knew the questions that were going to be asked of me in these MBA interviews. And she was training me to articulate and hold a point of view in a position that could be, you know, understandable <laughs> to someone else that doesn't know me. And that was an incredible preparation that, you know, I also recommend to other people. Like if you have people like that, that will behind the scenes train you in that way that have been there, done that to prepare you for the next step, you know, definitely leverage that because you just walk in with so much confidence knowing your opinion, your point of view after having talked it out with someone so thoroughly. And she would be very much a role model for me and how I would in the future manage people, navigate different types of political stakeholders within an organization, think about the, the next steps of what is going to inspire me in my career. So um, my sister would definitely be the one person I would say that is definitely a role model for me. Yeah, sisters do that for you, right? They're, they're your sounding boards, no matter what else happens. Absolutely. 
given that you have done so many different things, you worked for Red Bull, you worked for Ori, now you have your own company, like amazing progress. If I asked you to divide your life in chapters, what would they look like? I think there would be four chapters. So chapter one would definitely be the whole music industry story of doing everything under the sun, just saying yes to everything. So hungry, so curious. My chapter two would definitely be, I would say, the experience of translating my music industry experience to a lifestyle brand like Red Bull and really honing my skill as a content marketer and communication specialist. And then my chapter three is with Ori, which is, you know, translating I would say that that full breadth of marketing prowess collected over all the different types of jobs that I've had throughout my career into a startup environment where you just have to roll up your sleeves and do everything yourself. And, you know, that has led to this chapter four, which is great. I wish I had had all these things to provide value quicker in my you know, first three months at Ori. How can I help other marketers do that? And that's the, I guess, development process that I'm in right now, concepting how to really provide that value to founders and startup marketers. Um, and I'm lucky to work on several projects where I get to do that right now. So it, it's a nice virtuous cycle of everything kind of coming together. Yeah. You, you also had mentioned a while back that you see culture as an accelerator. And having worked for all these global brands and global companies, was that something based on your travels or was that based on work? Culture as an accelerator, I think, means a lot of different things and a lot of different chapters in my life. Culture is inherently built around the people and the people's behavior that kind of fosters that culture. And I think, you know, I am very people oriented when it comes to how to be creative, how to innovate, how to execute and ultimately how to do things better, faster, stronger. And so my focus in accelerating progress, whatever that means for that company at that stage, is all around how do we ensure the best culture for our people? What motivates them? What sets them up in the best mindset to do their best work and, and you know, realize their, their most potential? And for me, that is extremely important. In various different environments, people have different ways of approaching that um, and also a different prioritization of what that means. For me, as a personal philosophy, I think that is an absolute accelerator for business growth, as well as human potential. And so that's kind of what I mean when I say like culture is an accelerator. You had also written a very interesting article, Maze Brighting Your Career. <laughs> yes. That, that was it's so interesting. It was such a good read. And I see now your company is also named Maze Bright. So clearly that's a huge philosophy you abide by. And um you subscribe to. So for our listeners, what is that? And how do you see that really helping people figure out things for themselves? Yeah, so Maysbright is not my term. Um, it was a term that was coined in the 1940s to talk about Maysbright and Maysdahl um, rats, really, in terms of research experiments. And they would put these rats through mazes and segment them via rats that could basically navigate the maze quickly and rats that could not actually uh, navigate the maze quickly. And in the 1980s, this term maze bright was actually transformed into kind of an executive leadership skill set term that would define kind of the type of profile that is adaptable, quick, resourceful, et cetera, i.e. you can navigate a maze, whatever your work situation quickly. 
And my sister was the star, you know, performer of the family, you know, straight A student, honor roll, <laughs> you know, the, the, yeah, gold stars always on every single test. And I was not necessarily a gold star on every single test. I mean, I would say like to argue, I, I tried really hard. <laughs> the effort was there, just the, not the natural affinity of being book smart. And I remember very clearly when I was very young, I think my father kind of had an intuition that I wasn't going to be the straight A student all around like my sister. And he told me, you know, even if you're not, you know, the, the smartest in the room, as it's defined by educational standards, if you are maze bright, you will survive. And that really stuck with me. And I didn't really understand what that meant when I was so young. However, I have, I think, just having moved around so much, having traveled so much, built a skill set of being quite scrappy, flexible, resourceful, and figuring things out no matter what the situation because of just happenstance. I've had to. And that has trained me as well in professional environments to just figure it out. And I think for me, that skill set, you know, as companies evolve from stage to stage, as reorgs happen, you know, as strategies changes, I've always been in environments that are in this transformative state. Red Bull was transforming from a beverage to a media company. You know, the music industry was transforming from being in a kind of the historical CD record label to the digital industry of streaming. Um, you know, at, at the startup world, you're just in constant transformation every other week. And so the skill of being Maze Bright has been incredibly helpful and in being comfortable with transition constantly. <laughs> that flexibility, adaptability, resourcefulness, quick learning, has um, just been something that I value and also something that I think is helpful in the startup environment, which is why I, I named kind of the marketing startup kit Maze Bright, um, because again, you don't know, you know the evolutions and iterations and pivots you need to make at a startup. You're so embryotic. So you don't really know even know what the maze looks like. All you need to know is that you need to get from A to B somehow, right? Because you're trying to get to your next series of funding. So you have to figure out how to navigate this maze. And that is where I think this term has really not only been a, a very strong philosophy for the way I operate, but also something that I think is incredibly valuable in the situations of startups. And hopefully I can provide that value to other startup uh, founders and marketers. Now, I'm sure you can and you will. So you've worked with a lot of male dominated industries, right? Were there instances where you had challenges being the woman in such an industry and trying to chart your way? And how did you overcome these challenges? It's interesting because I have always been in male-dominated industries, but somehow found myself in very nurturing female microcosms. So in the hip-hop industry, growing up, you know, very young in my career in New York, very male-dominated, yet I was in a microcosm of a department that was primarily female. And not, you know, I mean, females at all levels from, from junior to senior executives to even the president at the time being a female. With that, I think I just had great examples around me. It's not that I've always worked for females, but I've always had in my surrounding area, females that are in my corner, let's put it this way. And it doesn't need to be my direct manager or even, you know, a direct colleague, but I've sought out a support system that gives me perspective. And I would argue that it's not even just females. I think diversity in general, um, you know, whether that's in culture, um, sexuality, um, just, you know, any different type of thinking 
is something that I really appreciate. I think it makes me better. And I have always surrounded myself with kind of what I call a creative council. I don't know. I think other people call it like a personal advisory board that allows you to just spar and, and gut check certain things. Am I thinking about this right way? How would you think about it? What have you done? You know, does this make sense to you? It can be incredibly lonely. I mean, people say that, right? It can be incredibly lonely at the top. And it is. <laughs> There's no other way to kind of describe it. I'm not good at mulling things alone in my head. That does not lead to a great outcome when I am thinking just within myself. I really need other people to have a conversation with that gives me a different way of looking at something that molds my strategy into something else. And that is my creative process. And so I have built kind of creative councils of all walks of life around me to have that, I guess, progression of, you know, strategic and critical thinking. And that has always made me feel like I'm not alone, that, you know, whether that's in a room full of men, whether that's in a room full of no racial diversity, whether that's in a room full of just static thinking, because I know that I have kind of this other nucleus of a creative council that's still surrounding me that behind the scenes, I get to sense check things with. So when I walk into that room, I know I'm not crazy if I have this thought that is like completely not of the thinking of the room. And that gives me confidence. That gives me personal conviction, you know, knowing that my belief system is relevant, maybe even if it's not in that room, somewhere. And I think that's really important because I, you know, as a young woman, especially as a young woman who's Asian, have definitely walked in the room where you feel quite alone. You feel like no one no one is, does no one else think this? Or like, does no one else think that this is wrong? <laughs> or like, like, is, is no one thinking that this is an odd statement to say or inappropriate statements to say? And you're like looking around for like camaraderie, but everyone just kind of chugs along and you think you're going crazy sometimes. You're just like, I can't, is that normal? But you know that it's not, you know, in your heart and your gut that something inappropriate is happening or being said, or it's not right. And having this creative council has always given me that that conviction to be like, nope, that's inappropriate. Or nope, that is, you know, completely not the way that we should be approaching this because it is completely insensitive to X. And I am unafraid to voice that in those forums because I know I'm not crazy. <laughs> and I really in enjoy, I would say, the next generation's conviction and voice around this. When I was growing up, I don't think I had that. It wasn't as forthcoming. I would say in a professional environment to stand up for the things that you believe when it came to gender equality, racial equality, opportunity, voice representation, et cetera. It just wasn't even a, a topic. So to have that uh, platform, to have that conversation for the younger generation, I think is absolutely incredible. And I'm so happy to see that progress. Absolutely. So if you had to kind of pinpoint two or three things that you think are, you know, developmental needs when it concerns women at workplace, what can we do better? to really advance our causes, advance our careers in the right direction? That's a very good question, Divya, because I would have to customize my answer per environment. But I think that actually is very telling for one of my values, which is adaptability. If you have any skill set that you can hone as a woman, as a diverse woman, I would even argue, it's adaptability. The reason why I say adaptability is not for you to change who you are to the environment, but it's about being able to navigate quickly to your benefit. 
you know, again, I talk about building you being proactive and building environments of success for yourself. And that is for you to thrive. I've kind of taken my, my father's comment about surviving and being like, well, surviving is great, but like, let's get to the thriving. I don't want to just survive. You know, <laughs> I want to thrive. <laughs> um, and I think adaptability allows you to thrive and navigate environments fast. So, you know, if there's one skill set, it's really around reading a room, understanding kind of the, the people and the voices and the behaviors to be able to navigate your ideal situation quickly. And that's with intention, with purpose and with meaning. You know, I think that is a skill set that is incredibly valuable. Now, how do you build an adaptable skill set? And I would argue, you know, travel doesn't matter if you're traveling to the next neighborhood. Just put yourself in unfamiliar, uncomfortable situations. It could be take a dance class, you know, if you've never taken a dance class or learn a language. Do something that puts you in a state of the unknown and figure out how to adapt. And that will help you no matter what you're faced with, because, you know, the one thing that's constant is change. No matter what situation you're faced with, no matter what type of personality you're faced with, no matter what type of environment you're faced with, you will quickly be able to figure out how to navigate it because you have, you're getting comfortable with the situation of the unknown. So if there's kind of one thing that I would advise, um, you know, someone, it would be to build up that skill set of adaptability. As a second thing, I would say curiosity. There's so many stories out there. There's so much knowledge, so many interesting things to inspire you. And I know it's, um, difficult sometimes for people to find their passions or it's, you know, it's, it's completely normal to, to not know what you want to do when you grow up or to not, you know, have a, have a passion point that fuels your, your every day. If you're curious enough to explore, I think you will discover those things for yourself faster. And I think there's a lot of things that come down to fear of the unknown. You know, how do you just put yourself in a really weird situation? And it's like, grab a bunch of friends, rally them together to just do something with you. You don't have to do these unknown things by yourself, but find people that can be curious with you. And with that curiosity, I'm sure you will learn and feel new things that are going to inspire you to your next step to then feel that passion and that inspiration. And ultimately then you're gonna have a collection of a toolbox of passions and exciting experiences. And through that, I think curiosity is just such a important mindset to have in order to bring yourself a, an abundance of opportunity. And so um, I really encourage, I would say, uh, to build that curiosity muscle. Thank you so much, Kyoko. This was such a wonderful conversation and I'm sure our listeners got a lot out of it. So thank you so much. No, absolutely. And, you know, kudos to you, Divya, for, you know, facilitating a conversation like this. I wish I had had listened to a podcast like this when I was younger. It would have given me so much direction, so much hope and so much insight. And so I really appreciate, you know, you charging the, the path forward for the next generation and thinking about this and guiding them. So um, absolutely uh, kudos to you for giving a platform for this conversation. Thank you so much. All right, wonderful. Thank you, Divya.